This week on Daiwa, we're in Lucas County. A farmer finds a badly decomposed body in a ditch while he's mowing the lawn. Welcome to Daiwa, the first Iowa-focused true crime podcast, where there's 99 counties and a murder in every one. These are your hosts, Beth LaValle and Allie Tulin. Alrighty, we're in Lucas County, Beth. Have you been? I sure have, and I feel like you have too. I feel like we might have gone together, maybe? <laughs> I don't know. I, I was trying to count the number of times I've been, and I think it's, it's maybe four. Oh, that's okay. I think I've only been once or twice. Did you just do a tour? I did a tour, and then I feel like I did an errand there once or something. Were we at the same tour together? I think so. Okay, that's probably what it was then. Anyways, <laughs> um, yeah, Hy-Vee has a distribution center and then also like a graphic design yeah. print shop there, um, and it employs a lot of Sheraton, Iowa. And obviously, Allie and I both worked for Hy-Vee, and so we would go down there and I guess the time we were together, we like toured the distribution center. It's actually very cool. Yeah. We learned a lot of fun facts about produce and meat stocking and all that and a bunch of freezers and stuff it's interesting (laughs) yeah what else do you know about the county um i looked up some fun facts it's known for its baseball program which is kind of random Mm -hmm. so according to wikipedia which you can harass us for our wikipedia facts i don't care (laughs) um but as recently as 2009 lucas county's babe ruth all-star teams have made it to the iowa state tournament and they've won five Babe Ruth state titles, with the most recent coming in 2008. They have not won any national titles, though. At least yet. I, what's it, what is a Babe Ruth all-star team? <laughs> I'm sorry. How dare, how dare you ask me that? <laughs> I need to know. There's a Babe Ruth league. Is that the same thing? I just didn't know if it was like little kids or like adults, but it is little kids, it looks like. Big assumption on my part. I thought it was like an AAU team, like a okay. recreational where like kids from my middle school would be on the school baseball team and the extracurricular baseball team at the same time. And the extracurricular teams were always way better than our school teams. Got it. Okay. Because they'd pick like the best people from the surrounding area. That makes sense. No? No, that okay. makes sense. All right. Well, my fact is also sports related. There are a surprising number of football players from Sheraton, Iowa. So the first being Paul Joseph, or Tiny, Engbretson. And he was a professional American football player in the 1930s and 40s who played offensive linemen for the Chicago Bears, the Chicago Cardinals, the Pittsburgh Pirates, and the Green Bay Packers. Then there's Theodore M. Stewart, and he was an American football player and coach. He played as an end and halfback for the University of Michigan and served as the head football coach at the Colorado School of Mines from 1910 to 1911. And then that is the, that's the name of the school. Don't laugh at <laughs> Colorado it. Colorado School of Mines. Doesn't Sheraton have a lot of mines, too? I feel like there was something in the area with Look mines. up your own fun facts, okay? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay, and then finally you have TJ Hawkinson, and he is a current American football tight end for the Detroit Lions and played college football for the Hawkeyes. Okay, so the story for today, I guess I should say that those are fun. 
<laughs> Thank you. Weird, weird that the Sheraton is like so sportsy. I didn't it know is. that. Yeah. Weird. So the story for today, we're in 1960. So for context, in 1960, President Eisenhower signed the Civil Rights Act of 1960 into law, which closed some of the loopholes about voter disenfranchisement. The United States Supreme Court decided that racial segregation in public transportation was unconstitutional with the Boynton versus Virginia case. And the first televised United States presidential debate happened between Kennedy and Nixon in 1960. And then just one more fun fact. The Etch-A-Sketch was invented. <laughs> when, when was the last time you were on an Etch-A-Sketch? It has been a minute. <laughs> What about you? Yeah, it's also been a minute, but we did have a family friend that was, like, really good at the Etch-A-Sketch. Oh. Which is a random talent. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, just a warning. This one is a cold case, and it starts on a warm summer day in August. A farmer named Ronald Mason is mowing his lawn, and he gets in the weeds near the ditch when he stumbles across a body at about 4 o'clock that day. It's a body of a woman, and she's wearing a dark green dress and white pumps. The fully clothed body was badly decomposed from a combination of heavy rains over the last weekend and the heat, but she was lying face up in high weeds about five feet off of a gravel road, and the sheriff said it looked like her body could have been thrown from a car. So Dorothy Kuhn was 36 years old. She was born in Lucas County and lived in Corridan six years before moving to Des Moines 12 years prior. She looks sweet and put together with her hair dark brown, short, and curly. She was the mother of two teenage children, Dennis, a 17-year-old boy, and Nancy, a 19-year-old girl. She worked as a file clerk at the Yonkers department store. She was diligent and often put in extra time at night at the store, and her neighbors liked her too. She had divorced her husband, Richard Kuhn, about 10 years prior. Her ex-husband left her to be with another woman. Richard eventually married that woman and they relocated to Albia, Iowa. He apparently did not pay child support or alimony, but he continued to occasionally meet up with Dorothy in Des Moines. Richard told police that he was home that evening with his new wife and her son, and polygraph tests that they conducted were inconclusive. So Dorothy was last seen on Thursday, August 25th. She had left her house at about midnight on Thursday and was last seen in the outfit that she was found in, that green dress. Her two kids were asleep when she left the house, and they said they didn't hear anyone go in or out of the house, and everything indicated that she left voluntarily, but one clue that indicated she thought she wouldn't be going long is that the electric coffee pot had been plugged in and left unattended. So again, she was found in a ditch, and the road she was found near was called the Melcher Road by locals. This road was actually used as a shortcut by Sheraton locals to get to Des Moines. And Sheraton to Des Moines is about a 40-mile drive. It also led to Dorothy's parents' house, just about four miles away. Mr. and Mrs. C.W. Chamberlain, Dorothy's parents, lived on a farm and were in Des Moines with Dorothy's two children when the body was found. Police officials got on the case right away. They closed off the road and did an extensive search for more clues. They found her black purse with a gold heart emblem about two miles from the body. The purse contained Mrs. Coon's identification card, a photograph of a baby, two silver dollars, and a wristwatch. Otherwise, Sheriff Swan said, quote, nothing of importance was found. Again, the heavy rains may have washed away important evidence like footprints, tire tracks, or other clues. 
Sheriff Swans also said that it seemed like Dorothy had been dead two or three days, or possibly longer, before she was found. L.C. Herman, the Lucas County coroner, said he believed Dorothy had been slain or dumped in the ditch and left to die. They ordered an autopsy right away. On August 31st, 1960, the preliminary autopsy report said that there were no apparent wounds on the body. Doctors at first said that there were indications of bruises on the throat and apparent fractures of neck bones, which may have indicated strangulation. However, late that night, officials said that that had not been entirely substantiated and that extensive lab tests might take days. T.A. Thompson, head of the State Bureau of Criminal Investigation, continued to be the lead on the case from here on out. It seemed like everyone agreed that there was foul play involved, but no one could determine who was at blame for the foul play or what had even happened to her. Thompson said the circumstances surrounding the disappearance of the woman were unusual. They started the investigation before the body was found because she was reported missing on Friday, August 26, after she hadn't been seen since Thursday at about midnight. Again, right away they questioned her ex-husband and he answered all questions satisfactorily. Thompson had said that there was no doubt that Dorothy was murdered. He said, quote, We are progressing with the investigation and have eliminated some suspects, but have a number of leads that will help in solving the murder, unquote. One of the major questions officers were facing is why the killer took Dorothy to Lucas County. Officials weren't sure where she was slain, and Thompson would say that he is only sure that Dorothy was dead when her body was placed or thrown in the ditch. Thompson was optimistic, saying, quote, We've got an idea of where we're going. We feel we've got some possibilities and some leads to follow. We would welcome any information from the general public, unquote. Four investigators from his office and two Des Moines detectives were all working full-time on the case. It seems that that optimism was lost by September 6, when Thompson said four or five persons who were all suspects had been questioned and cleared. At this point, the autopsy report had not come back yet. Thompson said the delay in the autopsy report has not stopped the investigation, quote, but it would be a big help if we had it. We have run out of some of our better leads. Officials finally received a partial autopsy report on September 7th, but they declined to make the findings public. By November 7th, a Des Moines Register article said that Dorothy's body was too badly decomposed to determine the cause of death. So in 1961, and then again in 2011, articles ran in the Des Moines Register noting which murder cases were still unsolved. Dorothy's case continues to run in those articles. According to Iowa Cold Cases, Dorothy's was one of about 150 cases that was on the list to use federal grant funding to try and solve the case via DNA testing. However, those funds were exhausted in 2011. Unfortunately, that's all we know about Dorothy's murder right now. Funeral services were held for Dorothy on August 31st at Hamilton's Westover Funeral Home. She is buried in Gosport Cemetery near Knoxville. Dorothy's father, C.W. Chamberlain, died in 1979 at the age 80, and Leota Blanche Moon Chamberlain, her mother, died in 1983 at the age of 82. They are both buried in Gosport Cemetery in Marion County. It looks like Dorothy had another sister that died at the age of 14 in 1938, and she's buried with her parents in Marion County. We can't find anything about Dorothy's children. If they were alive, they'd be about 79 and 81 today. So if you know anything about Dorothy Kuhn's disappearance, please contact the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation. So quite a few questions for TAPS. Do you want to give them a call? Sounds like a plan. (laughs) 
Hey, Tabs. Good evening. How are you? Good. All right. We're in Lucas County in this episode. Have you been there? I have. I don't think I've spent a lot of time. It's on the, the southern tiers of counties in Iowa. So I'm, that's probably the part of the state that I'm least familiar with. Mm. Oh, no fun so, facts. Yeah, no fun facts. All right. This one is a cold case. So my theory is someone she knew came to her door. She went out to talk with them. It got heated and they strangled her, panicked and threw her in a ditch. Do you think I can be a detective now? <laughs> well, I think anyone can be a detective. And I think that's... You don't believe that. There's no I don't way. know if it's not. That could be true. That could be the way it happened. You really I believe don't... anyone can be a detective? Sure. Everybody has theories of how something happens. I mean, think about it. You do inductive reasoning all day long. That's what detectives do. Who? What inspired you to be a cop? Were you like a big Sherlock Holmes fan or something? No. no I think I probably needed a job. No, I can tell you, in fact, what it was. When I went to college... There was a program called LEAP, Law Enforcement Education Program, and I was broke and I couldn't pay for college. And they told me that if I would be a cop for four years, they'd forgive all my college loans. So it was a pretty, it was a pretty easy choice. You didn't grow up wanting to be a cop? Oh, I liked cop stuff when I was a kid. I mean, I liked to watch stuff and everything, but I mean, that was kind of the thing that pushed me over the edge. Weren't you in the military? Yeah. Did they not forgive your college expenses because of that? No, um, because I was in ROTC um, and I wasn't on scholarship. I still had to pay. Oh. Because my math skills were not very good. Well, I don't think you need too many math skills to be a detective. Well, you have to to get a scholarship in Air Force ROTC. Yeah. Huh. I didn't know that. But back to best question, do you buy her theory? I don't buy it, but it's a theory. I guess, should we go into, do you have any theories yourself? I don't, there's not enough forensics Mm -hmm. available for me to form a good theory. I mean, is sexual assault a motive? We we never find out. We've never known. Is, um, even the cause of death is questionable. So I just don't have enough forensics to really come up with a good theory. Did she slip and fall as she's walking down a road? I don't know. Um, in this episode, the autopsy took quite a while. Any theories on why that happens? No, not a bit. Um, a murder case should have priority. This would have been before the state's central autopsy facility in Ankeny. At one point, it was just sometimes even local doctors doing them, not even forensic pathologists. So it, it's just hard to say why it took so long, but obviously it had an effect on the case. Um, have you ever had an autopsy come back without a clear cause of death? Yes, many times. Um, and they're very, very difficult because how do you convict somebody of murder when you have an inconclusive cause of death? Because guess what? The defense lawyer is going to, the first thing they're going to say in a a trial is tell me how this guy, how, how was he murdered? Officer, detective, whoever, tell me how this man was murdered. Well, we can't. I had a pretty bad one one time outside the back door of a bar where we think the only guy in the bar drinking with him was a guy that had been convicted of manslaughter. We had evidence that they had gotten into a beef at work, find him dead outside the back door of the bar in the alley, but the coroner could not come up with a cause of death. Because he was beaten so bad? 
No, because he had a head injury, but he could not conclusively say it came from a human being. That he might have been drunk. He had a, bl- a fairly high blood alcohol, and he kind of fell down and hit his head against a brick or something. Oh. Has any of the technology changed from this case to now, where you would be able to tell or determine cause of death if it's a really badly decomposed body? Yeah, I, I, I'm not that acquainted with the specifics of forensics when it comes to pathology, but I have to believe that they can do so much more now just in the examination of tissue. And plus, the big thing to me is we have trained pathologists that do it now. They know what they're looking for. Um, You know, if she was strangled, could they find petechiae in her eyes? Is there ligature marks around her neck? The sexual assault thing would have been huge. You know, DNA, obviously. There's just a lot of different things. And even on a decomposed body, the length of decomposition, you know, was there still postmortem lividity? I assume rigor mortis had come, and, had come out of the body already. A lot of those things would have given you some clues on how long the body had been there. Hmm. Kind of a random question for you, but do ex-husbands still have to pay child support if the mother is dead and maybe like they don't go back to the husband for care? Yes, they would, but I don't, I can't imagine where they would not go back to the husband for primary care because then they would have to go into the foster system. What if they went the, to like a grandmother or something? That would be a pretty interesting legal battle. It would depend on whether the husband wanted to relinquish his rights or not. But yeah, this child support would exist as long as there's a parental relationship. Also, to be clear, I don't think we ever find out what happened to the kids in this. But her husband had remarried and had like another family, right? Mm-hmm. But Yeah. I mean, he's, he's the primary suspect that, that, that would be the first suspect you look at. And I, you know, it'd be interesting to know what their relationship was like post-marriage and, you know, were they fighting about the kids and, but that's not to say he did it. It's just, he would be a suspect. Great segue. I think in this case, in a lot of cases like this, well, specifically in this case, the media, it sort of seemed like they were leaning toward the ex-husband is the prime suspect and people were wondering about him. And so it seems like people automatically assume the ex-husband is the murderer in cases like these. So what are your thoughts for or against that? Well, I mean, he would be the first person I would look at. Obviously, he was an ex-husband. Things weren't that great between them. And it'd be interesting to know if there was any financial relationship or if they had they were fighting badly, if the kids, there was some issue with the kids or something. But he would be a suspect right away. So it's not wrong to always, like you always go look at former relationships first. That's, that's how you make these cases yeah. is relationships. An old guy told me one time that I worked with, he was going to shoot himself in the head in the Missouri river and not tell anybody about it just to confound all the detectives. Cause we'd never be able to figure out what happened because the gun would disappear in the river and he'd have a gunshot wound to his head. And what he's trying to do is teach you about, if there's no relationships, it's very difficult to solve a homicide. I hope he didn't do that. <laughs> no, he didn't. He was using it metaphorically. Uh, what are your guesses of what happened to Dorothy? I have no idea. You, you'd have to know a lot more information about what happened and, and what the relationships were with the ex-husband. Was there somebody at work that was bothering her? Again, the sexual assault thing would be huge to me to try to figure out if she'd been sexually assaulted. 
I just, there's, there's just so many questions to ask. And it just seems like none of those questions were answered. Do you think there's any chance of this one being solved? I, I'd be hopeful if there was evidence left, but my experience has been that cases that are more than about 30, 40 years old, in a lot of those cases, the evidence has been lost or thrown away or discarded. Mm-hmm. Any final thoughts? No, I mean, it would be worthy of somebody digging through the files and stuff and trying to figure out. And I assume DCI is doing that. They have a cold case unit that does that routinely. But I would guess the reason we have never heard anything on this case is there's just nothing to, there's no evidence around to allow them to pursue anything. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you for joining us and we'll talk to you next time. See ya. Oh, hello there. As a marketer, I hate promotions like this. Same and same. But I love content. Me too. So if you like our content, give us a like, follow, share, subscribe, note, fax, literally anything you think would help us continue making Daiwa a success. Thank you, thank you, thank you.